Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode two of Atomic Habits. Fucking get ready. James, uh, some guy got hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was James. He had to uh, fight his way back onto the baseball team. Um, He learned the value of hard work. He went to bed early and kept his room really neat in college. And then he wrote a book and we're reading it. Uh, He's laid out the idea that all the results that we want are lagging indicators and setting up the system of habits is how we succeed. And now he's walking into what is that? Um, and, and he's got four components, which, which actually come from um, like habit science, which I think is a real thing. Um, read this book long ago uh, when I didn't pay that good of attention to it and I need to read it again, but called The Power of Habits. And so there's the Um, there's the cue, there's the craving, there's the response and the reward. And so, um, we're going to talk about all of that, but then he's overlaying his system of like how to, how to use that science to done get rich as hell. And that is what we're about to get learned up on today. How your habits shape your identity. Why is it so easy to repeat bad habits and so hard to form good ones? Few things can have a more powerful impact on your life than improving your daily habits. And yet, it is likely that this time next year, you'll be doing the same thing rather than something better. Fuck off, James. Nah, not me, bitch. It often feels difficult to keep good habits going for more than a few days, even with a sincere effort and the occasional burst of motivation. Habits like exercise, meditation, journaling, and cooking are reasonable for a day or two and then they become a hassle you know you're like you don't plan very well like i for me i've learned dude with cooking i on fridays i need to plan out what recipe i'm gonna make and i need to think through defrosting whatever meat that i'm gonna need because if i don't then like i'm just not gonna figure it out and then all of a sudden like i haven't i've eaten chicken patties for you know for like 14 days and so uh, you know, cause, cause you're sitting there and you're like, I'm tired from work. I don't know what to do. I'm not cooking. I don't have any ingredients. Like I'm not finding a recipe like bucket Tyson chicken patty, son. And so that's what we do a lot. We, we start a new habit. It seems reasonable. We get a little bit motivated. We're like journaling a little bit <laughs> and then we're like, Ooh, fuck this. And then we stop. However, once your habits are established, they seem to stick around forever, especially the unwanted ones. Changing our habits is challenging for two reasons. One, we try to change the wrong thing. And two, we try to change our habits in the wrong way. In this chapter, I'll address the first point. In the chapters that follow, I'll address the second. And so, this is all good. And this is good stuff. And it's a helpful tool in the toolkit. However, the entire summary of this book, if you forget everything else, is just don't be a pussy. Because you can have, like, 
you know, he, he's going to go a lot into designing the perfect environment. You know, it's like, like, think about how much more likely you are to get drunk as fuck if you've got delicious ass whiskey in your house versus like, you got to go drive to a bar to drink whiskey and it's expensive. Like, you're never going to get drunk as fuck because it's too expensive. And so he's like a, the king of engineering your environment for perfect outcomes. And, and there's a, you know, 80% of that is cool and makes sense. However, if you don't have a lot of resources or if you're, you know, like in a weird spot where maybe you're like a, at a boarding school or whatever and, you know, you, you, you're trying to get jacked and you just don't have a gym, like you can figure out how to succeed by just using your mind and not being a pussy. So like all this stuff we're going to talk about, really important, really cool, really good. However, remember, none of this is an excuse. Like, I don't want this to be, oh, you know, if I don't have the perfect environment, if I don't wake up, you know, have my coffee with two sugars, then like, oh, the day is ruined. Like, shut the fuck up. But if you, if you can accept that, I'm going to be successful regardless. But like, maybe some of this is is extra tools I can use. That's how you should be thinking about it. But the first mistake he said is that we try to change the wrong thing. To understand what I mean, consider that there are three levels at which a change can occur. You can imagine them like layers of an onion. Oh man, what a good sales metaphor. Sorry, getting fired up. The first layer is changing your outcomes. This level is concerned with changing your results. You know, this is focusing on net fees build as opposed to leads in the pipeline. This is, this is losing weight, publishing a book, winning the game. Most of, goal, most of the goals you set are associated with this level of change. You know, so this is, hey, in four months, I'm going to lose 25 pounds. That's the goal. Okay. The second layer is changing the process. This level is concerned with changing your habits and systems. And, and he's talked about, like, this is really important. This is where the work happens. You know, implementing a new routine at the gym, planning for cooking you know so every friday now i plan my recipe i go to the grocery store i cook on sundays and then i've got some like easy staple meals that take zero planning but are fucking delicious i got four different ones that i can cook on wednesday and so i'll do that on wednesday but before i had that dude it was you know it was, it was my life was filled with liars bitches and thieves and so the second layer is you change the process and that's critical most of the habits you build are associated with this level but this is crazy but he's taking it one level deeper and the third and deepest level is changing your identity this level is concerned with changing your beliefs your worldview your self-image your judgments about yourself and others most of the beliefs assumptions and biases you hold are associated with this level so um like a like a like a good example is i dude i used to in in like this is so fucking meaningless to say until you've actually been me and like felt this but like i used to know that i was not quantitative and not organized like i would plan shit and it was not even a plan it was like i'm going to do nothing until four minutes before the thing and then like freak out and then see what i can do in four minutes and so like sometimes i could pull stuff off because like it's amazing what you can do in four minutes when everything's on fire. But a lot of times, like, you know, I never studied for anything. <laughs> and so, and then like, you know, or I, you know, I'd spend the day before I'd cram and then like, you know, I'd get a B minus and I'm like, man, I'm just not good at math. Uh, and I was never organized, you know, I'd always lose things. And so after I read the talent code, I was like, oh, God 
damn it. I'm not disorganized or, you know, I can be good at math. I'm just a pussy. (laughs) I need to, I need to do better. And so I changed my identity and I was like, "Uh uh-uh, actually I can learn anything. Currently my skill is, is objectively not good, but I can learn it through deliberate practice. And then like seven years later, eight years later, um, because you know, I, I did sales and then I was like a financial advisor and I hated my fucking life. And then I, now I go start and I work for this consulting company, but I'm actually not doing the sales. I'm doing all of the, everything else besides the sales. So I'm setting up the sales process. I'm, uh, figuring out like how to do the CRM and, you know, and like I, and, and I went deep on it, man. I got my lean six Sigma black belt certification. Um, you know, and, and I remember my old man friend who great dude. Uh, but, but he has, he's made the comment a couple of times, like, you know, you can't teach penguins to fly. I'm like, we're not penguins, bitch. And, uh, he, he, I was telling him like, I'm like, Hey man, I'm, I'm actually not very organized or quantitative, like naturally, uh, nature and nurture, like that wasn't the case. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm actually like naturally like, uh, like a decent salesperson. Um, you know, I mean, again, like I just said on the previous episode, like I'm not a natural salesperson, but like, go with me, you know what I'm saying? And he could not get over his head. Like he could not get through his head. He's like, but, but no, no, man, you're, you're a process guy. And I'm like, I'm not, it takes me four times longer than anyone else to set up process. Now I can, I've learned how to do it, but I'm definitely not a process guy, but that's because I had to change my identity, but but what I'm saying is I changed it so well that my old man friend thinks I'm like this distinguished fucking operations guru. And it's like, bitch, you should have seen me that one time when I thought there was a red lobster in Brownsburg, Indiana on Valentine's Day and uh, almost had to get fucking divorced. Many people begin the process of changing their habits by focusing on what they want to achieve. This leads to outcomes-based habits. The alternative is to build identity-based habits. With this approach, we start by focusing on who we wish to become. And this is where, again, the solution, don't be a pussy, but also this is useful because imagine two people resisting a cigarette. So you say, hey, hey, man, you want a cigarette? The first person says, nah, I'm trying to quit. Okay, that sounds like a reasonable excuse. Hey, I'm trying not to drink as much. This person still believes that they're a smoker who is trying to be something else. They're hoping their behavior will change while carrying around the same beliefs. The second person says, hey, nope, I don't drink. Or hey, I'm not a smoker. Smoking was part of their former life, not their current one. They no longer identify as someone who smokes. So that's interesting. So I, ha- I was like, hey, I'm not quantitative. I'm not organized. I'm not detail oriented. And then now it's like, hey, you know, I'm pretty good with details. In, in, in reality, like, I'm the same fucking person, but I changed my identity and I realized like, hey, bitch, I actually can be decent at (laughs) fucking being organized. I was just a lazy little bitch. Behavior that is incongruent with the self will not last. And and so what he's saying is, so he's talking about like cognitive dissonance. So like if you say you're an ethical person and you go around like butt raping everybody, man, I probably can't say that. If you say you're an ethical person and you go around stealing from grandmas like for you're not going to be able to hold that identity in your heart that you're an ethical person for very long and so behavior that's incongruent with yourself will not last 
You may want more money, but if your identity is someone who's like, man, I sure spend money like it's going out of style, bitch, you're never going to get money. The ultimate form of intrinsic motivation is when a habit becomes part of your identity. It's one thing to say, I'm the type of person who wants this. It's something very different to say, I am this. Like, I never said, I'm a runner <laughs> because I fucking hated running. Now, there were times where it was cool. There were times where I'd like listen to really cool podcasts when I'm running or like blast metal. And I feel like, a, I don't know, I feel like probably what like a Nazgul felt like. And I was like, man, this is, this is cool. But I'd always caveat it as like, yeah, I'm not a runner. But like you talk to my boss, who's the 62 year old version of me, basically. And he's like, yeah, I, I am a runner. And he's like, I don't drink because he used to drink. And for me, I'm like, hey, I'm trying to drink less. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to run a little bit more. And so what James is saying is like, my clearly my identity is not committed to those. True behavior change is identity change. Improvements are only temporary until they become part of who you are. Many people walk through life in a cognitive slumber, blindly following the norms attached to their identity. I'm just not good with numbers. I'm not a morning person. I'm bad at remembering people's names and a thousand other variations. When you've repeated a story to yourself for years, it's easy to slide into these mental grooves and accept them as fact. So I was at a party and um, this was five days after I accidentally went to a Memorial Day party and blacked out at one in the afternoon and then like got in big trouble and had to buy my wife shoes because I was being hilarious and she was offended. And uh, that's true. It's what happened. And so five days later, we went to another party. So I was like, you know, getting a little crunk, but like very much on my best behavior. But there was this uh, girl who, who's a, she was a speech pathologist and she was like, like gothic snow white speech pathologist and i was just asking her lots of questions because i had like vocal cord dysfunction long ago and, and she's like oh my god you've got vcd i'm like oh shit you abbreviate that shit hell yeah i do i got vcd but um she said she was you know I was somehow obviously we started talking about deliberate practice and the growth mindset um and she's like yeah i mean that's really cool but like what if you are and then she named a disorder about math and she said that she's like i can't do the math because of this disorder and i was like sounds like you got a fixed mindset and she got like deeply offended but i'm gonna buy her the talent code and the growth mindset book um by carol dweck heil and uh and hopefully she realizes that nah -uh, nah -uh. you actually just are walking around believing the cognitive slumber following the norms attached to your identity, like James says. Because I guarantee I was worse at math than you think you are right now. I drew a giraffe on my accounting final exam, and I said, please uh, forgive this performance. I hope the giraffe helps. In a college class, my parents paid $50,000 for DePaul. I mean, I got a scholarship, whatever. But like, that is the fucking level that I went to. The biggest barrier to a positive change at any level, individual, team, or society is identity conflict. Good habits can make rational sense, but if they conflict with your identity, you will fail to put them in action. You know, it's like, oh, I got an addictive personality. And then all of a sudden you find, you find yourself shotgunning beers and butt chugging donuts. Like, you know, hey man, maybe you gotta let go of that idea that you have an addictive personality. I don't know. I'm not letting go of that idea yet. But, um, but I, I think that like the point though is that's a pretty surprisingly powerful idea. So, Life is a 
massively complex system. But, but ultimately, you know, the moves you make over the iterated game of life over the decades that you're alive are your edge from like a gambling perspective. You know, like if you go in your card counter in, in Vegas, you know, your edge might be you're now going to win 54% of the time. So if you play long enough, you're going to beat the house. You're going to take the house's money. And so, you know, the things you do are your edge. And what he's saying is if you change your identity and if you say, hey, I'm the type of person that makes smart moves and counts cards, you know, this is just me. This is what we do. Uh, you will win. <laughs> That's fucking crazy, dude. And he says, this is why you can't get too attached to one version of your identity. Uh, progress re requires unlearning. Becoming the best version of yourself requires you to continuously edit your beliefs and upgrade and expand your identity. And now this is where that Alex Hormozy dude, um, he, so he, you know, started a gym. He's more jacked than me and leaner than me and the same age as me and it's a hundred million dollars. But hey, I'm just inspired by it. And um, he started a gym and he started this training licensing thing. Uh, and then he sold it for $60 million and now he's got a bunch of other businesses and now he runs a private equity company. But, but he says when he talks to founders of companies, so like you'll start a company and you'll you'll get to a million dollars a year and, you know, which probably means you're taking home 70 grand a year or something. And you can just do that on just like what you've got, just like you're going to will that into existence. But he says to go from, you know, one to three you're going to have to like kind of have to kind of change some of your beliefs about yourself. You know, like, oh, you didn't think you were good at accounting. Well, hey, bitch, you're going to you cannot go from three to 10 million unless you get good at accounting uh, or like mm, you don't like managing people. You have to change that belief. And so he actually talks about like to get to the next level in business. Sometimes you actually have to, to change and build your identity and your character traits um, you know, like, are you a person of integrity and which is a which is like a fucking crazy thought. Like he's got such a growth mindset that like he's saying sometimes, you know, maybe you were a shithead in college. Maybe you used to, you know, crap in a diaper and then set it on fire and then like, you know, knock on someone's door and then they stomp on the shitty diaper. Like maybe you used to do that. Maybe you pissed in someone, you know, another fraternity's dryers or like in the, the floor of their basement because you were mad that there was not a party or something, but like, I don't know, hypothetically. And, um, but he's saying to get to the next level, maybe what life calls for, what your business calls for is you have to change your identity and you're like, you know what? I am a person of integrity. And so all of that is just like a pretty fucking crazy thought where everybody gets it wrong because they're starting with the outcome. Doing the habits is better. But he's saying if you can, you can take it even one step further and change your identity and you just are the person that does the good habits that turn in the outcome, bitch, you're going to be a, you're going to be a gajillionaire and jacked as hell. The two-step process to changing your identity. Your identity emerges out of your habits. You are not born with preset beliefs. Every belief, including those about yourself, is learned and conditioned through experience. More precisely, your habits are how you embody your identity. You know, I used to, part of my identity back in the day used to be I would pee outside in front of other people because I had to pee. <laughs> I don't know, man. And, you know, like that became the thing. I remember we were going to a, allegedly, I don't remember this one, but I was totally blackout in um, with my good friend Danny, uh, other Danny. Uh, and he, uh, 
it was like he was my chaperone because in college I would you know like when I didn't know how to drink freshman year I would just like call Danny and say I'm blackout save me and then I would hang up on him 20 times in a row super good friend I am and uh, but he had found me he'd saved me he was walking me home and I saw volleyball court and I was like oh I know what cats do in volleyball courts and I peed but you know what the problem was there was like I don't know a hundred people around me because it was like six in the evening and so you know my identity was hey man you know you never know man you know hey if, if the if the spirit strikes me i might piss in front of you but now i'm a professional man and i, I don't do that you know I, I i've grown and i am i'm you know i think you could even say an adult more precisely your habits are how you embody your identity when you make your bed each day I don't think anybody does that, but I get the point. You embody the identity of an organized person. When you write each day, you embody the identity of a creative person. When you train each day, you embody the identity of an athletic person. The more you repeat a behavior, the more you reinforce the identity associated with that behavior. If you go to the gym, even when it's snowing, you have evidence that you are committed to fitness. The more evidence you have for a belief, the more strongly you will believe it. Yeah, man, uh, I now have a, a home gym with heat because it's in my basement. It's so great. But for three years, there was no air conditioning or no heat in my home gym. And I live in Indiana. And so for, let's see, like October a little bit, but November, December, January, February, it would get insanely cold in the gym. You know, I'd have to wear... I don't even know. This is insane. Like I have to wear sweatpants and like Carhartt coat and gloves and a hat and shit. And like my eyelids would be freezing shut. And um, I remember I was progressing my sumo deadlift because it started to fix my back somewhat. And uh, the my back was so on a razor's edge of like getting better that I had to deadlift barefoot. And I remember it being like minus 10 and me deadlifting barefoot. And if I look at that though, like part of that is crazy, but part of it was like, that was evidence to me. It was like, who else is willing to do this? Nobody. And so like, that's what's going to set me apart. And so he's saying, you do all these things, you do all these habits, but that actually informs your identity, you know, cause I'm not just like, oh, I'm a guy who works out. It's like, I'm a guy who works out no matter what, even if I get frostbite and, um, and again, I'm not saying that to be like super cool. I'm just saying like, you know, if you do the really hard things over and over and over, like you look at it and your identity now has all this evidence, which is like, I guess I'm a Kusemono, Jesus Christ. Of course, your habits are not the only actions that influence your identity, but by virtue of their frequency, they usually are the most important ones. So you think there's, there's also just like random choices you make, like, you know, do you slap a grandma or do you help the grandma across the street? You know, that's not like a habit. But there are, you know, there's just choices you make in your life that inform your identity. Be saying a surprising amount of what goes into your identity are the things you just repeatedly do. Each experience in life modifies your self-image, but it's unlikely you would consider yourself a soccer player because you kicked a ball once or an artist because you did one picture. But as you repeat your habits, the evidence accumulates and your self-image begins to change. It's like you look around at all this evidence of you being a disciplined person and you're like, well, I guess I'm a disciplined person, man. And it's a gradual evolution. 
We do not change by snapping our fingers and deciding to be something entirely new. We change bit by bit, day by day, habit by habit. We are continually undergoing microevolution of the self. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs, but as the vote builds up, so does the evidence of your new identity. This is one reason why meaningful change does not require radical change, and that's the paradox of small improvements. And so what that basically is saying is like all we're really trying to do is like do the thing enough that you wake up and you're like, oh, hey, I am the type of person who likes working a sales job and who's good at sales. Okay, great. If you think like that and that's actually true and reinforced by the world, you're good. You don't even have to try anymore. And um, but and like you don't even have to do massive improvement to get there. It's just it's the paradox of small improvements where you chip away day by day by day. And all of a sudden now your identity changes and, and you're good. And um, this is probably child abuse. But um, back in the day, I used to be scared of getting hit in the face. Uh, and not like scared, but like in Taekwondo, we would hit, the, we'd punch the body, we'd kick to the head, but like try not to kick to the nose or the eyes. And now how, but like you could kick to, you could punch, punch and kick to the forehead. Um, and so like you ended up, it was like a 92%, maybe 89% applicable to when you started actually boxing. But like I had not had the experience of getting cracked in the nose that much. And so my instructor was like, oh, we got to fix that. And so me and this other kid, he's like, Hey. For the next 30 minutes, go in the corner, punch each other in the face. And we're like, what? And we just kept doing it. And like, not that hard, but like, and maybe a little bit harder, but we, but we were getting comfortable with getting punched in the face. And then we're like, oh, okay. Like, that's not that bad. And then our identity changed. It used to be like, man, I kind of get nervous when I get punched in the face. Then it's like, whatever, man, who fucking cares? It's a simple two-step process. Decide the type of person you want to be. Prove it to yourself with small wins. These are big questions and many people aren't sure where to begin, but they do know what kind of results they want. Maybe they want a six pack. Maybe they want to be less anxious or double their salary. That's fine. Um, and so what he's just basically saying is like, cool, decide what you want and decide what type of person you want to be. Like maybe you want to be the type of person that can go get a six pack. Okay, start there. And then ask yourself, who is the type of person that could get the outcome I want? What would they do? You know, it's like I have on my whiteboard, I have, um, I wrote up there, I'm like, what would a $3 million producer do? Do that. Because dude, if I'm doing $3 million, I'm raking and shit is crazy and in a great way. And so, you know, it's like, okay, I'll just become the type of person that can do $3 million and I'll just do all those activities until it's reality. So he's going to move off the identity concept now, um, but he's just he's just reiterating like, hey, the first step when you're trying to have any sort of change is not the what or the how, but the who, okay? What identity, like I would have to truly believe, like I had to truly believe that I could learn math before I started being able to learn math. Not from some hippy-dippy bullshit, but like if you don't honestly think that you're the type of person that can do it, you're not going to be able to do it. So that's why we're starting there. But I think let's move into more of the specifics and the habits. So there's this guy named Ed, and he was studying cats in 1898. He built this puzzle box, and um, basically it was like uh, a box, and the cats had, you know, that maybe they had to tap their paw, maybe they had to like 
touch their nose to something, maybe they had to push a lever, and then they would get let out of the box and they would get a treat. And so, but like if you've ever owned a cat, you put a cat in something it doesn't want, it is pissed. Um, most cats wanted to escape as soon as they were placed inside the box, which meant they were pissed. They would poke their nose into the corners, stick their paws through the openings, claw at the loose objects. After a few minutes of exploration, the cats would happen to press the magical lever and the door would open. They would escape. But as soon as the lever had been pressed, the process of learning began. So you put this crazy fucking cat and the cat's like, and then it presses a button and it's like, whoa, okay, cool. Gradually, each cat learned to associate the action of pressing the lever with the reward of escaping the box and getting to the food. After 20 or 30 trials, this behavior became so automatic and habitual that the cat could escape within a few seconds. From his studies, Thorndike described the learning process by stating, behaviors followed by satisfying consequences tend to be repeated and those that produce unpleasant consequences are less likely to be repeated. If every time you grabbed a beer, oh, so perfect example, I used to drink beer, man. I loved beer. I mean, I had so much beer. I had my um, my my wedding rehearsal dinner was at the Irish Claddagh, which is, you know, and I was chugging fucking Guinness and maybe got too drunk, and but all of a sudden I was hanging out with my Uncle Steve, and um, here we are. And all of a sudden, though, I had, I had this, I don't know exactly when, but like if I have one beer, I started to feel really sick. And if I had two beers, like I remember the thing, I grabbed a beer with Jordy and um, I had I had one Sam Adams and I woke up at 11 at night and I threw up. And, and dude, I tested this 30 or 40 fucking times. I can't have beer. And so I now, I don't even want beer because I associate beer with the sickness. And so he's saying for cats at least, but we think it applies more broadly. If there's an unsatisfying consequence, you know, you drink a beer, you throw up, you probably don't want a beer. If there's a positive consequence, you know, you drink a beer, it's wonderful, you want a beer. And this dude's work, Edward Thorndike, provides the starting point for discussing how habits form into our own lives. It also provides answers to some fundamental questions like, what are habits? Why does our brain bother building them at all? Uh, a habit is a behavior that has been repeated enough times to become automatic. The process of habit formation begins with trial and error. Whenever you encounter a new situation in life, your brain has to make a decision. How do I respond to this? Uh, the first time you come across a problem, you're not sure how it works. You're like Thorndike's cat. You're just trying things to see what works. Occasionally, like a cat pressing a lever, you stumble across a solution. You're feeling anxious, you discover going for a run calms you down. This is the feedback loop of all human behavior. Try, fail, learn, try differently. With practice, the useless movements fade away and the useful actions get reinforced. That's a habit forming. Now, I also will say if you get some coaching during that, you don't have to be in that idiot phase for quite as long, but you can learn it all on your own without a coach if you have to. As habits are created, the level of activity in the brain decreases. You learn to lock in on the cues that predict success and tune out everything else. Now, whenever you feel stressed, you get the itch to run. So what he's saying is that like, as we're going through life, you know, some of this is conscious, but some of this is just like trial and error. And you know, and some of it's maybe you're consciously trying something, but also like 
man, I'm so damn pissed. And then you drive by McDonald's and you're like, I want a fish fillet. And then you eat a fish fillet. And then now all of a sudden, like every time you're pissed and you're near a McDonald's, you're like, maybe I should get a fish fillet. Like that's how habits start to form. Habit formation is incredibly useful because the conscious mind is the bottleneck of the brain. It can only pay attention to one problem at a time. Habits do not restrict freedom, they create it. In fact, the people who don't have their habits handled are often the ones with the least amount of freedom. Without good financial habits, you'll always be struggling for the next dollar. If you're always being forced to make decisions about simple tasks, when should I work out, where do I go to write, when do I pay the bills, then you have less time for freedom. It's only by making the fundamentals of life easier that you can create the mental space needed for free thinking and creativity. Okay, so that's pretty true actually. And now again, like don't be a pussy is the solution, but I am trying to get good at shooting bows and shooting guns, okay? And I've been trying, you know, just chipping away at this path for five years. When I first started, you know, five, six years ago, it was like, I was, I would still understand that I have to do the activities. And so I would like say, Hey, I'm going to shoot my bow six times a week. But I was under the impression that like, man, I'm really busy. My schedule's not predictable enough that I'm just going to do six check boxes. And then throughout the week, when I get a second, I'm going to shoot my bow. But what would happen was I would get like at the beginning of the week, of course I would be busy and then I would not do anything. And then all of a sudden it was Thursday and it was like, cool, I've got to shoot my bow six times by Sunday. And then I would go through the motions and it'd be shitty practice. And so what he's saying is that when I had the habit, and so now I've scheduled it. So I know on Mondays I shoot my bow and you know, like that's kind of crazy, but also like who fucking cares. Um, and, and so, but I've also said like, I'm going to have some grace with myself. So if I'm traveling, if I go to like a business dinner, you know, if, if I'm just like, I can't handle it, um, which doesn't happen very often. Like one out of 30 times, I'm like, I'm too stressed, dude. I can't fucking do it. Um, then I won't do it. But the but having the metric scheduled is like, I'm not going to ever not shoot bows because I just like, oh, hey, it's Tuesday. It's Monday, whatever. I look at the thing and, and I kind of plan it a little bit. And so he, he's reiterating this. He's like, when your habits are dialed in, and the basics of life are handled and done, your mind is free to focus on new challenges and master the next set of problems. The process of building a habit can be divided into four simple steps, cue, craving, response, and reward. Breaking it down into these fundamental parts can help us understand what a habit is, how it works, and how to improve it. Okay, and so he's been um, kind of like laying out the why and the strategy so far. But now he's going to go into the science, into the specifics of habits. And again, solution, don't be a pussy, but it's probably pretty important because, you know, like <laughs> going back, man, like don't be a pussy really actually does work, um, you know, when you're working out, but like also doing some science works too. So process is cue, craving, response, and reward. The first is the cue. The cue triggers your brain to initiate a behavior. So... Let's just throw out a bunch of these. So so let's say you're an alcoholic or let's say you even just like drinking. You know, you drive by a bar and maybe it's a sports bar and you have all these good memories of, you know, hanging out with friends and being at the bar. Um, maybe it's you get anxious. Maybe it's, um, you know, you're you're hungry. That's a cue. Like for me, when I get hungry, dude, I get teleported back to cutting weight for wrestling. 
and then I just become a just just a werewolf and like I'm not very sociable and nice and like it's a problem because I can't cut that well because I just get crazy man so I don't know um let's see what else let's see maybe you get angry maybe that's a cue um maybe like maybe someone cuts you off in traffic that's a cue um uh, let's think of two more um let's see okay you're walking in your yard and the grass touches your shin which means the grass is too long okay that's a cue uh and then maybe it's 5 a.m and you're waiting to work out and you're you know trying not to go to sleep that's the cue okay so we'll, we'll just go with anxious so you feel anxious that's the cue the craving is the second step and, and the craving is the motivational force behind every habit. Without some level of motivation or desire, without craving a change, we have no reason to act. What you crave is not the habit itself, but the change in state it delivers. So, okay, you're anxious, and now you're craving the release of the anxiety. You're, you're like, man, I do not like this feeling, and I would like to not be anxious. And so you're not really craving the cigarette, you're craving the feeling of relief provides. So like, man, I'm anxious. Mm, I want a drink now. You know, for a gambler, the sound of slot machines can be a potent trigger. So the slot machines is the cue that sparks an intense wave of desire. You know, so the cue happens and then you're like, mm, I really want to gamble now. But for someone who rarely gambles, the jingles and chimes of a casino are just like annoying. You know, for some people, you know, morally loose women on world start twerking is the siren song of their people, but others, it's morally repugnant. So that's the, the second step. Uh, the third is the response. So you have the cue. So, you know, you feel anxious. You have the craving. Man, I, I need this to go away. Now you have the response. And the response is the actual habit you perform, which can take the form of a thought or an action. You know, so it could be like, let's say anxious. Like there's a lot of ways you can handle that cue. And then the craving of wanting to not be anxious. You can repeat a mantra. You're like, you know what? I'm nice. I'm strong. I'm important. You can take a deep breath. That's an action. You can, you know, say, hey, I'm going to do a bit of a bit of tactical breathing. You can have a drink of whiskey. You can go for a run. You can smoke a cigarette. You know, you can you can slap somebody. You know, so so the response is is what we're currently trying to do to relieve the craving. And then the reward is the last thing. So finally, the response delivers a reward. Rewards are the, the end goal of every habit. So the cue is about noticing the reward. Craving is about wanting the reward. The response is about attaining the reward. Uh, we chase rewards because they serve two purposes. They satisfy us and they teach us. The first purpose is the rewards satisfy the craving. So let's say we go for a run. Well, actually, let's think about smoking. So so see, so you're feeling anxious. The craving is, man, I want to not be anxious. The response is you smoke a cigarette. And then the reward is you're not anxious. But that's a bad habit. Maybe you don't want to do that. And so you need to now say, oh, hey, I'm feeling anxious. I have the same craving, but I'm going to respond with running. And I, I, I need to make sure that I try as much as I can to mimic the same reward of, oh, now I'm not less anxious. Because you do it once. And his second point is it starts to, you start to, learn and starts to teach you and so now you learn oh hey when i'm anxious i want a cigarette 
And that's how, you know, if you work a stressful job, all of a sudden now you're smoking 20 cigarettes a day because there's multiple times a day where you're like, hmm, I'm a little anxious. And then, hmm, well, you might as well smoke a cigarette. So I have a weird example, but in college we did metal Thursdays. And so our fraternity, and I've shared this because it was foundational in my life, but our fraternity, we had wine and swing dancing, which I hated. I had a moral problem with it. I'm like, ain't no swing dancing going to happen in this fraternity. Fuck that. And so me and my good friend, maybe one other friend, at the most, we had six people attend Metal Thursdays, but it was great. And uh, we set up right next to the room and we would blast metal uh, while, while they were trying to do wine and swing dancing. And during that, though, I was like, I, I somehow accidentally on purpose was, so I still thought I could be an MMA fighter. And part of being an M MMA fighter is you need to have very deadened shins. Like if you think about Anderson Silva, Chris Weidman, like they all broke their shins when they were kicking somebody. And that's horrible. And, and I would say that part of that is probably because like the Muay Thai people, like part of their conditioning is conditioning their shins. So like they kick banana trees, their shins are fucking dead. And so the cue of copious amounts of alcohol and metal music in my veins. Then the craving. Well, the gap between how the metal makes me feel and what I am, a pussy with weak shins. And, and, and so the response is like that red-eyed albino from the Da Vinci Code, I punished my shins. I would hit my shins with a pool cue. Bam, 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 bam. And the reward is the feeling of pain the next day, knowing that I'm one step closer to possessing the manly virtues I so deeply covet. And so as we wind this episode down, we're going to uh, get a preview of how he thinks about the four laws. So we, we've laid out how habits form, but then he's got four laws of like, like that's the, that's the what, that's the facts, but he's got the how, he's got the, okay, what to do about it now. If a behavior is insufficient in any of the four stages, it will not become a habit. Eliminate the cue and your habit will never start. Reduce the craving and you won't experience enough motivation to act. Make the behavior difficult and you won't be able to do it. And if the reward fails to satisfy your desire, then you'll have no reason to do it again in the future. Without the first three steps, a behavior will not occur. Without all four, a, be a behavior will not be repeated. This four-step process is not something that happens occasionally, but rather is an endless feedback loop that's, that's running and active during every moment that you're alive, even now. The brain is continually scanning the environment, predicting what will happen next, trying out different responses and learning from the results. In the following chapters, we will see time and time again how the four stages of cue, craving, response, and reward influence nearly everything we do each day. But before we do that, we need to transform these four steps into a practical framework that we can use to design good habits and eliminate bad ones. And so he's saying if... Listen, man, you know, if you go back to thinking fast and slow, we're a lot closer to cats than we are to gods. And so if we truly do have some of these like automatic habits and triggers and like, you know, you're driving back to the bar and you know that, hey, every time you drive home by going past the bar, you're going to stop for a drink. But if you drive home a different way, you're not going to feel like you're never going to have the cue and then you're never going to want to do it. And so like he's going to now lay out, hey, these are the this is the system of how to actually implement the the four uh, parts of a habit. So, so okay, so he's gonna just lay out his four laws. So the first law is make it obvious. And so this is the cue. So if you wanna have a good habit, you need to have the, key, the cue 
be obvious. Um, okay, so that's so he's going to talk about this throughout the whole uh, rest of the series, but uh, make it obvious. The second law, which relates to the craving, is make it attractive. Okay, so let's say we're trying to trying to run. Maybe we, so we got to make it obvious. So maybe we're going to leave our running clothes out the night before. We're going to make it attractive. Okay, maybe we're going to um, you know buy really nice baller running clothes. Uh, the third law, which relates to the response, is we're going to make it easy. Okay, we're going to say, hey, instead of saying I've got to go run, you know, 30 miles tomorrow, because what we know is that if you can get 1% better a day, bitch, you're going to be 37% better by the end of the year. So if you just say, hey, I'm going to put on my shoes and I'm going to fast walk half a mile. But if I feel inspired, I'll run. That's making it easy. That's the third law. And then the fourth law is make it satisfying. Okay, and, and you know, this would be, you know, sometimes built into running, you get the runner's high. But, you know, it's like I've learned that going for a nice slow run actually is kind of satisfying. Running away from metaphorical terrorists is like you feel spiritually crushed and it's not satisfying. And so that's what he's going to lay out. And in an in interesting um, opposite, so, let's, so that's how to do good habits. Well, let's say you're trying to break a bad habit. Okay, well, you just invert it. Okay, so um, for the first law, which relates to the cue, make it invisible. You know, drive a different way home from work. Okay, you could probably, let's say that the only time that this habit rears its head is you when you're driving home from work because you're stressed and you see the, the bar and then you're like, man, I better go get a drink. Uh, make it invisible. You know, set your GPS that to, to route you in whatever way, but to avoid that bar. Um, inversion of the second law, which is the craving, it, which is make it attractive, make it unattractive. Okay. You know, I don't know, listen to a bunch of podcasts by people who used to be alcoholics and hear the horrible things they did. And then you're like, Oh man, I don't really feel that great about like going and getting a beer. Um, inversion of the third law, make it difficult. Say, okay, cool. You know what? I'm going to drive a different way home. I'm going to listen to, you know, these, these former alcoholics who are telling about how horrible their shit is. And then, but you know, like, I'm not going to try to like win this on willpower. So if I do need to go to, if I do end up going to the bar, I'm just going to have to text my wife or my boss or something, every single drink that I have. Okay. And then you know, the, the last is make it unsatisfying. And so with going to the bar, you know, maybe you, I don't fucking know, like maybe you have a, have a calculator where you calculate how much the alcohol would cost if you drank it at home versus drank it at a bar. And you, you know, like have a calculator where you just see how much money you're wasting. You know, if you think about it like that and you've got a bad habit, like bitch, you're going to be able to just pretty quickly make that habit not happen and i think that's an interesting concept because don't be a pussy is the solution like you just force your corpse and do it however how much easier is it to force your corpse if you've got the odds stacked in your favor so you still probably will have to use the discipline but just be smart about where you use it whenever you want to change your behavior you can simply ask yourself how can i make it obvious how can i make it attractive how can i make it easy how can i make it satisfying if you've ever wondered why don't I do what I say I'm going to do? Why don't I lose the weight or stop smoking or save for retirement or start that side business? Why do I say something is important, but I never seem to make time for it? The answer to those questions 
can be found somewhere in these four laws. Your habits are shaped by the systems in your life. In the chapters that follow, we will discuss these laws one by one and show how you can use them to create a system in which good habits emerge naturally and bad habits wither away. But if you want that, if you want more, if you want to hang with us, he's about to walk into his operating system for how to build the perfect set of habits to get whatever you want in life. If you want to rebuild your face after a baseball bat attack, listen up. But if you want that, you're going to have to tune in. Yes, yes, you will on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.